This is episode 36 of Ethics and Culture Cast from the DeNicola Center for Ethics and Culture. Welcome to episode 36 of Ethics and Culture Cast from Notre Dame's DeNicola Center for Ethics and Culture. I'm Ken Hellenius, the communications specialist at the center. In this episode, we sit down with Arthur Brooks, the former president of the American Enterprise Institute and the author of Love Your Enemies, How Decent People Can Save America from the Culture of Contempt. We talk about the importance of freedom of speech on college campuses, the role of American Catholics throughout history, and the importance of willing the good of the other as other. Let's sit down for this week's conversation. Well, Arthur Brooks, thank you very much for coming to be with us. Thank you. It's great to be with you here in Notre Dame. I love this place. It's As a Catholic, South Bend, Indiana, it's kind of like a Muslim doing the Hajj <laughs> to Mecca. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, except we let everybody in, uh-huh. and uh, you know, you don't, you don't have even non Catholics, even non Catholics, on a case by case basis. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Tell me a story. Tell me a little bit about you, about where you're from, about your life to this point. Mm. I'm a musician. Uh, that was what I did from the time I was a little kid. That's all I've ever. That's all I ever thought about doing. I grew up in Seattle, Washington, to a a family of artists and academics. My father was a college professor. My mother was a painter and an amateur violinist and pianist. And from the youngest days, they told me I was going to be a classical musician. So when I was five years old, I took up the piano and violin at four, violin at uh, piano at five, and the French horn when I was eight, and that really stuck because I was good (laughs) at it. And, uh, and, and, And all I wanted to do was to be the greatest French horn player in the world. And which is a weird thing, right? But well, America's a great country. <laughs> right. You can be president or French horn player. Yeah, exactly. And and I, I grew up doing that, uh dreaming about when I could make my living as a classical musician with the greatest orchestras in the world. And um and I was led to something entirely different by the greatest composer in the world. Here's the twist in the story. Um the greatest composer who ever lived, in my view. I mean, reasonable people disagree, is Johann Sebastian Bach. Mm-hmm. Uh, he lived from 1685 to 1750. He published more than 1,000 pieces of music. He had 20 kids. I mean, that's... He lived a full life. He was productive. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh, and when I was, I was, as a professional musician, I mean, I had left college uh, when I was 19. I made it through about 10 months of college, and I went on the road playing as a professional musician, you know, living my dream. And I, I was listening to my favorite composer, and I read this biography of Bach, and he was asked by this minor biographer, lost to posterity at this point, why do you write music? And I'm super interested in this, right? Mm-hmm. Because, you know, I'm all about music. And Bach's answer was that the aim and final end of music is nothing less than the glorification of God and the refreshment of the soul. And I asked myself, could I say that? Could I say that? Is that my, that's Bach's story. Is that my story? It wasn't my story. I was not glorifying God. I was not refreshing the souls of others. I didn't think. And so I went in search of some way that I could answer like Bach answered. And I wound up leaving music and becoming an economist. <laughs> um, I'd say that's the twist in the story. That's the twist in the story. I went and got my PhD. I left music. I taught at Syracuse for 10 years. I ran a think tank in DC for 10 years. And now I'm a professor at Harvard I'm yeah. teaching leadership and I'm working as a social scientist, but still in my heart, 
I'm a musician. Do you still play? No. <laughs> I don't play. I listen all the time. And there's okay. I have a movie out that's playing on Netflix right now called right. The Pursuit. And yeah. in that movie, where some documentary filmmakers followed me around the world for three years, uh, I just happened to be on the concert stage in Barcelona where I made my living for a long time. Mm-hmm. And they ambushed me because filmmakers are, you know, f- fortunately, you know, my pants stayed on and through the entire movie. I, I want, I, you know. <laughs> okay, well, that's good. Yeah, so. no, it's really good. I mean, it's, it's, it's a family, family picture. <laughs> the, um, but they put a French horn in my hands and I played it for the first time in 20 years. And I got to say, it's pretty bad. <laughs> Well, I'm not going to ambush you, I promise. You know, like I like I tell people all the time, I'm not Mike Wallace. Yeah, so, I got yeah. it. I appreciate that. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Thank you for not barbecuing me. And... <laughs> um, so for the past 10 years, you were the president of the American Enterprise yeah. Institute. Think Tank mentioned. in D.C., dedicated to public policy, um, everything from national security to education policy to tax to everything in between. One of the oldest think tanks in the world. It's been around for 80 years. Okay. And the first major international think tank dedicated to principles of the free enterprise system and American leadership. And that very much grew out of your professional research as, as an academic, kind of getting involved with, the, with AEI. Yeah, for sure. So when I was teaching at Syracuse, one of the key uh, issues that I wanted to tackle was why had poverty gotten so much better since I was a kid? I mean, most people, even those listening to us, uh, they have a terrific social conscience and they believe in, you know, the social justice mission of the gospel, like I and you do really strongly, but they don't recognize that there's been a lot of progress. We have a tendency to think that everything's gotten worse, that Mm -hmm. the poor are poorer than they've been, and that's completely upside down and wrong. Uh, since I was a kid, uh, two billion people have been pulled out of starvation level poverty. Two bi- for the first time in human history, the percentage of the world's population living on a dollar a day or less, obviously adjusted for inflation, right. has declined by eighty yeah. percent since you and I were kids. And you got to ask yourself, you know, what the heck happened? Yeah. And if you can't explain it, then you can't replicate it. And if we're going to work for social justice around the world, then we're 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 not doing our job by not understanding this. So I, I went digging as an economist and what actually did that. And I, I became persuaded that the reason for this incredible decline in world poverty was basically five forces. Number one is globalization, the globalization of values, the globalization of ideas. The second was uh, free trade. So particularly after 1980, free trade started to spread around the world, making goods and services cheaper, creating opening markets for people, making it possible for people to earn their success. Third was property rights and the rule of law, which were spreading around the world. People were basically throwing off their chains. They were looking at Americans and saying, I want to live like that. I want their freedom and I want their stuff. And the way that you get that is by overthrowing the jerk in the, you know, the chief executive office who's saying that you know, what's yours is mine. Mm-hmm. So property rights and the rule of law authentically started to spread around the world. And the last, quite frankly, was the culture of American-style entrepreneurship. It was we can, this can be done and we can do it. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, at the explosion of the means of communication around the world, that was not perfect because, you know, the, sort of the McDonald's Coca-Cola culture going around the world has had some deleterious impacts. None of us would deny that. Mm-hmm. I mean, no, not to cast aspersions on McDonald's or Coca-Cola, <laughs> but the whole idea of sort of cheapening culture and, and, and not all of that is good because it's not protected the beauty of indigenous cultures as well as we could, of course, there's cost. But there's so many good things about that as well, where people mm-hmm. are actually able to see what can be done. They've, and they've demanded, people have demanded freedom. That was a really incredible gift to the world. By the way, that wasn't just an American gift to the world. That was, to a very large extent, the gift of American Catholics to the world. 
And this is an important thing for those of us who are listening to us and are interested in what's going on in Notre Dame need to understand. American Catholicism is the Catholicism of the outsiders moving to a place where individuals really have a, a great deal of autonomy. And so it was this weird alchemy of the, the uh, religion, an ancient religion, uh, the one true church of community, of love, as instantiated by our Savior, brought to a country where the individual has a lot of autonomy and where there's a lot of expectation for you to build your own life. Mm-hmm. At the same time, the Catholics that came here were not of landed gentry, were not of the empire, but rather were the the, the ambitious riffraff. That combination of ingredients meant that American Catholicism was the best exemplar, not of radical individualism, but of the blend of individualism with community, of ambition with family. And and that understanding has been such an incredible gift to the world. That's why Notre Dame can and should be, and I believe will be, um, the most important higher education institution in the world. Let's just stop the interview there. That's good. (laughs) Uh, lots of things are, are bubbling up. Uh, thinking about Notre Dame is an in, is we we even say you know it's a microcosm of the universal church. I mean, yes, and especially the church in the United States yeah, of America. Absolutely. You know, because of course here American we have people, Catholicism is here. It's yeah. yeah. Every, everybody from the the far ultra you know to use political terms left all the way to the ultra right you know, um, and and everywhere in between. Right. Uh, and then even this, the, certainly the the ethnic makeup. You know, I mean, <laughs> we're the Fighting Irish. Started, you know, is what we're known as. But, of course, it's a French religious order that yeah. is post-revolution, yeah. you know, post-French revolution, all, all these sorts of things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, Brother that Andre is on the wall. but you know. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> you know, and, and uh, so, yeah, there's a lot there's a lot going on here. And and yeah. and and to be a, you know, a top tier research institution. That's right. And, and That's right. No, then well. it's in- important to remember, it, you know, when people are here in South Bend, Indiana, it's 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 easy to forget how much leverage that South Bend can have over the whole country and indeed the world. Um, the, the, the world runs on ideas today. I mean, it's the, the, the economy of ideas is paramount in progress and in, in, and in decline in a lot of cases. I mean, mm-hmm. ideas are king. Uh, and, and this is an idea institution. And so the extent that at Notre Dame, you – Students, the faculty, the staff, understand that that this is that the apostolate of Notre Dame University, of Notre Dame, it runs on on ideas. Mm-hmm. You know, and to, to, it's interesting. You know, when you when you look at the work of when you look at the writings of Saint Paul, or you look at the greatest evangelists and the, the work of the saints, they're always really good at their job, and they always did something else. And so, the apostolate. This is you know, the sanctification of ordinary work requires mm-hmm. that you become excellent at what you do, truly, mm-hmm. such that you have a magnetism, and that is ultimately your apostolate. Your apostolate has to run on 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 a vocational fuel, yeah, right. And the vocational fuel of University of Notre Dame is ideas, where ideas are literally the most important fuel for progress in the world. That's why this place is so important. Mm-hmm. And and so it's easy to get to, to lose sight of that when you're in South Bend, Indiana. I get it. But to remember that this place has an incredibly important apostolic role for the Roman Catholic Church in the United States, for higher ed in general, and indeed for the worldwide body of Christian believers. Makes me think a lot about, you know, the the grand debates about freedom of speech on campus particularly. Yeah. You know, the importance of having various voices you know ever uh, whether whether that be somebody and and not shutting them down not you know deplatforming people 
you know, and you talk a lot about this in, in your book, Love Your Enemies. For sure. Is, For sure. I is, talk about the campus wars, but just in general. I mean, we're in, when, when ideas are the fuel for progress, then then there's going to be a lot of battles about which ideas are permissible. Mm-hmm. You know, you notice that people get a lot more bent out of shape about ideas than they did in the past because yeah. ideas are this resource. Uh, that's one of the reasons that we see the kind of political dynamics that we see today and the polarization that we see today. And that's why we see that there are a lot of people who don't want other ideas to be shared. They think that ideas are dangerous and that speech becomes a kind of violence. That's become quite common on college campuses, really not so much here at Notre Dame, but in a lot of college campuses around around the country and indeed around the world. And so I, I think it's important that Notre Dame continue to resist that. Mm-hmm. Um, the Free speech absolutism is really, really important. And again, you know, this is the uh, American Catholic advantage where we can <laughs> – we actually understand something that a lot of our, our Catholic brothers and sisters in Europe would never get, you know, where, where, you know, where the state religion says there are certain things you can say and certain things you can't. No state religion. Mm-hmm. All voluntary, right? Mm-hmm. Free market for souls, man. <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, at a place like this, it's very, very important to be an exemplar of, of the radical freedom of speech where if something – you hear something that you think is wrong, bad, even dangerous, the answer is not less of that. The answer is more speech. Mm-hmm. Like flood the zone with ideas, and and in so doing, uh, we, we can have the confidence that that our our own apostolate will will be supreme and magnetic. And you talk about the idea of not silencing them because that allows that idea never to go unchecked. That allows that this idea that maybe not not offensive, but actually what would you say dangerous idea? Yeah, um, you have to interact with it so that you can not not necessarily convert the heart of the person saying it, but so that the idea itself can be addressed. Well, it's just, it just leads to mediocrity. Mm-hmm. You know, if excellence comes from the interchange of ideas, remember that the world was brought forward by this, this cultural globalization about free trade and property rights, including free trade and ideas, yeah. and, and this culture of entrepreneurship, free enterprise. Well, that requires that people exchange all the time. Yeah. And people and people challenge each other, and and when you when you shut down any conversation, when you make it impermissible to talk about any particular topic, well, then those who don't hear it for the first time they get weak. You know, one of the reasons, I mean, the things that I mean, I'm on college campuses all the time. Uh, every week, I go to a different college campus. Now that I'm back in academia, and I go to places that don't have a culture of of the free exchange of ideas, and you know, the people are it's just mediocrity. You know, they, their, their ideas have largely gone unchallenged. And so you can, you know, you can basically knock them over with a feather. Well, that's no good. Right. I don't want that. We and should they, know they that. they can't critically analyze your, what you're offering either in that, in that moment. No. And they don't think they should have to because speech is violence in a certain way. So I'm, 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 I'm really impressed that Notre Dame hasn't fallen prey to this. And I hope that this university continues to stand strong for these, not just the ideal of the University of Notre Dame, but this is an American ideal. Well, now you've, you mentioned you just started this summer at Harvard University. Yeah. Uh, you have a joint appointment at the Kennedy School and at the Harvard Business School. That's so right. What will you be teaching there in Cambridge and so who I'm are actually, your students? Yeah. So I'm only teaching graduate students to begin with. At, okay. at some point, I'll, I'll, I'll wind up teaching students at the college. Um, but right now, I'm teaching master's of public policy students at the Kennedy School in the core, which is to say the required curriculum for these master's students. I'm with some colleagues. I'm designing a class this fall that starts in October. It's a 
half semester course on mm-hmm. tools of democratic leadership. And basically what it is, is uh, for me, it's all the stuff that I wish I had known when I took over as a chief executive, but didn't. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so it's a lot of social science. They'll, they'll read a lot of academic journal articles, but feeding into very practical tools of how the vision and resources, the execution and accountability, how people can become better leaders um, when they're young, middle-aged, old, whenever – and uh, and it's going to be a practical course, a tools based course. And then in the in the spring, I'm creating a brand new course at, at the Harvard Business School called Leadership and Happiness. Happiness and love are my research beat as a social mm-hmm. scientist. And mm-hmm. it, I mean that sounds sort of squishy and hippie, and 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 I have been credibly accused of being a hippie in the past. Um, You're the shortest hair hippie I've ever. Well, met. Well, it's like I got no hair, man. <laughs> I mean, it's like I had hair; it'd be it'd be down to my shoulders, and it would be a thing to behold. Trust me. Uh, but I got none. I got none of that. Yeah. So, but the you know when it's it sounds like you know we're strumming guitars in here, but you know, but love and happiness are a hard edged thing. Aquinas, uh, he defined love as to will the good of the other. Mm-hmm. And that's, I mean, that's a real deal. That's razor sharp. It's not any feelings there at all that he's talking about, at least. That's Aristotelian. And so <laughs> when, when you do work like that, you can actually understand how the, the practical implications of it. And it's the most practical implication I could possibly put together by saying, look, if you're going to be the most effective leader in business and government and the nonprofit sector, or for that matter, in your community and your family, you have a responsibility to be a person with joy in your life or you're going to have spillover negative impacts on others and you have a responsibility to lead other people to pursue their own happiness most effectively. This is a course in seven weeks that teaches you how to do that. And and it's it's going to be fun. And so I said, you know, it's nothing more than a – it's a brand new course. It's, a, yeah. it's an, an elective course for the MBA students at Harvard Business School. And – I, you know, I threw it up into the catalog. I'll see if anybody likes it. And um, seven people are on the waiting list for every spot in the class. Wow. Yeah. So I have six, I have six, 60 spots in the class and I have had about 400 people sign up. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Um, you met, you just mentioned, you know, Thomas Aquinas' definition of love. love. And in your book, you actually talked about, is it Michael Novak who modified that? Yeah, yeah. And added, love is willing the good of the other as other. Yeah. And I about drove off the road as I was listening to that because yeah. that is something that I've thought about a lot. And this idea of it's not just willing your good so that I can get something better out of you. That's yeah. utilitarian. That's uh-huh. that. But it's – it's because I want you to be happy too, mm-hmm. and I want you to be not not happy, but I want I want the best for you, and your flourishing as you. Yeah, you know. Yeah, um, no, that's right. That's right. It's a beautiful thing. And, and Michael Novak, who maybe a lot of people listening to us know who he is, but some don't. Michael Novak was a Catholic philosopher and theologian. He passed away just a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, he was he taught early in his career at Syracuse, like me, but it was way before I was there. Yeah, and then he came to the American Enterprise Institute, and when I became president of AEI. In 2009, he was a scholar there. Later, he went to Ave Maria University in Florida, and we were both on the board of Ave together. Okay. So uh, he's had a big influence on me. And that you know, he's done fundamental work and really important work all throughout his career. But that was the – for me, it's funny. You know, you're judged by who, who knows after we die how people are going to judge your most impactful thing. I think it was two words. It was those two words that he added to Thomas Aquinas to will the good of the other as other. Mm-hmm. And what I would ask people to do who are listening to us today is to reflect on that, to reflect on on the loves in my life. 
it, when you have a disordered relationship with somebody, almost always is because you're not willing the good of the other person as that person. Mm-hmm. And to, to write it down, because it actually takes a little, it's complicated enough that you got to write it down and look at the words a little bit and then to take a few notes on some of the relationships in your life and ways that you can truly love another person as that person and mm-hmm. to will their authentic good. And it'll, it, I'm telling you, it, it, it'll change your relationships. Yeah. You mentioned before we started recording that this book, which is Love Your Enemies, How Decent People Can Save America from the Culture of Contempt. Yep. You mentioned that this book was as much for you as it was for, for your readers. Yeah, for sure. I mean, and, and I, was, I wrote this book while I was president of AEI. It came out in March before I left, but I had been working on it for the past few years. Normally, the way that I write a book is I don't have an idea and then write the book and then go talk about the book. Uh, when I was president of AEI, I was doing 175 speeches a year. And, and and raising $50 million a year. So my job was like running for Senate and never getting elected, basically. <laughs> but I'm talking about ideas all the time. And so the ideas that I can't get away from that are hunting me um, are what I wind up writing a book about. So while I will have talked about something thousands of times before I actually put pen to paper, that's how I think better, how mm-hmm. I understand the clarity of my thought and when, when I'm more coherent. And so I had been thinking about this all the way through this process of political polarization. And I had a couple of experiences that led me to want to write a book called Love Your Enemies. The first was that I, I read, I just read this academic journal article, which is, you know, what I do for fun. And uh, fun <laughs> guy, fun guy, man. <laughs> <Yeah>. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, in 2014, there were these guys, uh, psychologists at Northwestern who wrote a, a paper um, in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences on something called motive attribution asymmetry. And that's the, the phenomenon in which I believe I'm motivated by love, but you're motivated by hatred. And so there's, no, and you think the same thing. Motive attribution asymmetry. Mm-hmm. And you can, most conflict, intractable conflict in the world is because two sides are each believe that they're motivated by love and the other side by hatred. And so therefore they can't deal with each other. Now, that's based on a cognitive error. You, you can't both be right. I mean, both of us can't be both motivated by love and motivated by hatred. Correct. So one or both of us is wrong. And in virtually all the cases, we understand that both sides are wrong. But the Palestinian-Israeli conflict, for example, is largely a problem of motive attribution asymmetry. Um, But these guys, the reason this this paper caught my eye from 2014 is that he found that for the very first time since we've been keeping records, that the level of motivation, motive attribution asymmetry is the same between Democrats and Republicans in America as it is between Palestinians and Israelis. Wow. Yeah. So, and this really, this was really haunting me, man. And it was just rolling around my head. And then I started having experiences that made it clear what that meant. Um, I, I was given a talk at a rally, a big conservative rally in, um, in New Hampshire. And I said in the middle of my talk, I stopped and I said, look, my friends, um, I'm getting some applause lines here for what I'm saying that you perceive to be really conservative stuff. And that's fine. But I want you to remember the people who are not here because they're not comfortable. They're political progressives. And, th- and, and I want you to remember that they're not stupid. They're not evil. These are people who simply disagree with you and me on public policy. And they're Americans. And this lady calls out, I think they're stupid and evil. And, and that was an applause line. <laughs> and I thought to myself, that's motive attribution asymmetry. Uh, I don't ever want to fall prey to that. Why? Because number one, it's incredibly impractical. Nobody in history has ever been persuaded through insults. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, wow, it's true. I am a moron. Never happened, huh. right? 
How can so, I make myself better now yeah, that you've mentioned Yeah, it? I know. It's like, thank you for pointing that out. Mm-hmm. Um, the error of my ways and how stupid I am. Um, that's, you know, so, so it's an impractical approach and it, it hardens opposition. But it's also morally really problematic. And that should be, a, that's immediately apparent to every single one of us as Catholics. What do we want when people disagree with us? Think about all the people out there that are hostile to the things that are important to us, to our faith, to our, our, the, the meaning of life, all the stuff that we hold dear, that we're willing to argue about, that we're willing to sacrifice for, right? Those people who disagree with us and who are American citizens, anybody in the world that are our brothers and sisters, what do you want? Do you want to hurt them? No. Do you want to exile them? Do you want to sneak into their house and do something bad to them at night? Do you want to have them arrested because their views? Like, no, of course not. What do you want? You want them to think and act differently. So, how's your hate working out for that man? How much? How much are you getting done with that? It's not 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 to mention the fact that every single person listening to us today has people that they love with whom they disagree politically, and when somebody says those things, they're insulting your mom. Mm-hmm. Or your sister, they're insulting somebody that you love. It's it it is it is incredibly practical and moral and decent to take the advice of our Savior in Matthew five forty four and to love our enemies because in so doing we destroy the illusion that the person was our enemy in the first place. Mm-hmm. This is very much a book about about inherent human dignity. Yeah, it is about human dignity. Dignity is dignity is to be worthy of respect. Mm-hmm. We as Christians, as Catholics, we believe that dignity is radically equal between all people. Why? Because God is worthy of respect. You're made in God's image, so therefore you're worthy of respect. Every single person is is equally made in God's image, so every single person is equally worthy of respect. And to be worthy of respect is to have dignity. That's the equality of human dignity. That's it's you know QED. That's mm-hmm. the proof. Yeah. Right. The problem is that not everybody has an equal sense of their own human dignity. And so the opportunity for us as, as apostolic Catholics is to help people understand their radically equal human dignity. And the way that you do that is by helping them understand that they're necessary in the lives of the rest of us. And so I've dedicated my work to making people needed. Uh, and it's changed how I approach policy. It's changed how I approach politics. It's changed how I approach the way that I deal with everything from the homeless to people who disagree with me politically to my students to my own kids. <laughs> it's a, I mean, it's not – this is the pro-life message at its core. When, yeah. we do, when we're doing it right, this is the pro-life message. Everybody is – Has equal human dignity. Has equal human dignity. Yeah, it's about, it's about equal it human needed. dignity. For sure. For sure. Exactly right. Exactly right. Everybody is necessary. Um, now, there are a lot of cases where people are incapacitated in such a way or, or not sentient in a way that they can understand their equal human dignity, whether they're in a persistent vegetative state or they're pre-born. Right. But that doesn't mean that we don't have an obligation. No, forget the obligation, that we don't have this incredible opportunity, this, this, this exciting adventure of bringing that neededness to every human life. They too are loved. And created in the yeah. image and likeness of God. Exactly right. Yeah. Love by God, original likeness of God, and 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 love by each by by us. Love by us. Mm-hmm. We've talked a lot, you know, and, and found the points of intersection with faith here. And in your book, you you uh, talk about you know working with the Dalai Lama and asking him, uh, and and him giving you the response that the only way out is to practice warm heartedness. Yeah. Um. What what role does faith play? And is it 
is it required that people be people of faith in order to help us work our way out of this? It's a good question. And and I don't I don't know the answer. I mean, I do know that for me, um, I need my faith to put one foot in front of the other every day. And, and, and part of that is because of the it revealed to me that this is the core of who I am as a person. Um, it's then that said, I know a lot of wonderful people with fantastic ethics who are making the world a better place who don't have my faith or don't have any faith at all. Mm-hmm. And and I have to say, God works through people in all different sorts of ways. It has to be the case. Um, Norman Pedoritz one time, you know, the great intellectual, the great conservative intellectual, uh, wrote a book once where he talked about how it, you know God's sense of humor led atheist Marxists to found the modern state of Israel. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. I mean, it's like it's, God can work with whoever He wants, man. Sure. I mean, <laughs> God gets to do that. But for me, um, the work that I'm going to get done is part and parcel of who I am as a person, and who I am as a person is is um, Arthur Brooks is a Roman Catholic. Mm-hmm. Semi verbi, the seeds of the word. Yeah. You know, these little kind of that that. Small, still small voice in our hearts, yeah. what, whatever it may be, yeah. is is yeah. And, and for me, that's just this incredible adventure, you know. And I yeah. talk to young people, my you know, my kids, my students, um, anybody. I mean, it's one of the things that I, I I encourage people to do is to see your life as a startup. Uh, you know, because what is a startup? It's something where you, you you don't know the resources at hand. You have faith that you can you have explosive rewards from these little tiny seeds. And the startup of your life requires it, – it requires a sense of adventure. Mm-hmm. And the adventure, the greatest adventure of my life is the, the expansion of my, my religious faith. I mean I'm 55 years old and I'm just getting started. Yeah. I, I can't even imagine with – you know, maybe I get five years more. I mean we die young in my family. <laughs> or maybe we get 40 more years. But right. one way or the other, the, the rest of my life every day is going to be this big adventure. And it's largely because I'm just plumbing the depths of you know, what God wants for my life and who God is and you know, looking for the face of, 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 of the Savior and those around me and, 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 my, and bringing that as magnetically as I possibly can to other people and lifting them up and bringing them together. Hmm. Do you have hope? Is there cause for hope that we can get ourselves out of this culture of contempt? So the culture of contempt is a, is a term of art that I put together for this last book that said we don't. it's not that we're angry with each other. Anger is a hot cognition. It says I care about what you think and I want you to change. Contempt takes anger and mixes it with disgust and turns it ice cold. It says I don't care about you. I don't care about what you think because you and what you think are worthless. It's the conviction of the other worthlessness of another person according to Arthur Schopenhauer, you know, the, who died in 1860 but the great philosopher. Contempt is the relationship killer. Uh, overt signs of contempt are the best predictor of divorce. Eye rolling, sarcastic humor, derision, dismissal. Um, if if you want an enemy, treat a person with contempt. Roll your eyes when somebody says something. You know the coworker who always does that, and just <laughs> you can't get over it. That's that's what we do in politics. So the culture of contempt in American politics is not one of political anger or just bitterness because we disagree with each other. It's that we treat each other with that kind of contempt. I believe that we absolutely can get out of that, but we have to recognize it for what it is. And all of us have to work, those of us who who want to fight against that, who are dedicated to a better America, where we are brothers and sisters and we treat each other with, forget civility, because civility is a complete garbage standard. 
uh, my wife and I are civil to each other. Right. Well, you need counseling. Yeah. Um, But where we treat each other with love, which is the only standard to which we should be held. I mean, that's uh, the the Bible's clear on this, but your heart is clear on this too. Mm -hmm. The only way that we can do that is by on purpose fighting against the enemy, which is contempt. Well, that's hard to disagree with. (laughs) (laughs) Arthur Brooks, thank you so much for being with us. And and thanks for coming and sharing your message here at Notre Dame and on all all the college campuses that you travel to as well. Thanks a lot. God bless you and God bless your listeners and and, uh, go Irish. you to Arthur Brooks. You will find links to his book and to his documentary film, The Pursuit, in the show notes. Subscribe to Ethics and Culture Cast so that you can always get the latest episodes by visiting ethicscenter.nd.edu slash podcast. We would love your feedback. Please review the show on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts and email your suggestions to cecpodcast at nd.edu. Our theme music is I Dunno by Grapes, licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution License. We'll see you next time on Ethics and Culture Cast. Until then, make good decisions. Good decisions.